0: welcome to rants and revelations with mike and steve a place where theology and everyday life collide the opinions expressed in rants and revelations with mike and steve are ours and ours alone we're not seeking to make a documentary with incriminating evidence we're just seeking to provide an avenue for us to express ourselves tell our story and help anybody who may be blessed by it in doing so we have changed some names and places for the sake of anonymity and to protect those who may not want their information given out. Well, Mike, welcome back once again. Um, anything new and exciting in the life of Michael Lewis?
1: Um, I mean, new? Yes. Exciting?
0: Yeah. Every day is technically new, so that's... Yeah. I'll take it. I'll take it. So we're starting off today with a little bit of controversy in the church, and um, Big things are happening in the Christian world, and this is something that we wanted to address before we jumped into our main topic, but Chick-fil-A versus Raising Cane's. Mm. This is the gospel chicken, which is closed on Sunday, which means it loves Jesus, versus Raising Cane's, which is named after a murderer, and Mm. is open on Sundays, yeah. Now, are you going murder chicken or gospel chicken? Ooh, wow. You
1: frame it so well. It's like a dialectic approach to- <laughs> <laughs> you
0: yeah, know one tries. <laughs> to, to
1: fast food. <laughs> um, I I know this is probably an unpopular opinion, but I think uh,
0: Chick-fil-A is just overrated. Yeah. So I will say, for me, I think Cane's has the better chicken and the better sauce mm-hmm. because their sauce is- I don't know if they put meth in it, crack. Maybe a combination. Uh, yeah, they have their own special blend of meth crack. Yeah. Um, being here in SoCal, that's everywhere. It basically <laughs> litters the streets, for those of you from the Midwest. You come here. It's, it's just, our MSG. It's, there's meth and crack everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's, you go know, to the Chinese restaurants, it's not MSG, it's meth and crack. Yeah. But I will say, Chick-fil-A has the better fries. I don't hate Cane's fries, but I prefer Chick-fil-A's fries over Cain's, but I prefer Cain's chicken. Okay, that's fair. That's me. The
1: the only, The bone I have to pick, this is one of the bones I have to pick with uh, Chick-fil-A, they will not do their fries well done.
0: Really? I didn't yes. know that. I and like I, my fries crispy. And I know you like them crispy. I so do. I like them crispy. In and out, everywhere you go, you're
1: asking yep. for them well done. I am, and I'm, I'm like, hey, can I get these uh, well done or crispy or whatever you call it? And they're like, oh, we don't do that. They're like, we love Jesus, not you. <laughs> yeah, like we. this is the ordained way that the lord has <laughs> bequeathed upon us to make fries so <laughs> you're Chick-fil-A just masters. out of luck
0: yeah oh, okay which i get
1: it because it messes up your f- workflow yeah to have to do a batch of fries yeah. one batch well done um but at the same time like waffle fries well done Son. It's
0: it's crispy delightness. It is magic. All right, so we're sticking with Chick-fil-A for a second. Okay. Which of their sauces do you go for? Because mm. Cane's doesn't have the variety Chick-fil-A has. That's true. Chick-fil-A does have a good variety of sauces. I, I feel like going to Chick-fil-A and raiding their sauce cabinet and then going to Cane's and dipping their chicken in it would probably usher in the coming of the Antichrist. But <laughs> I
1: think that's somewhere in like either Daniel, Ezekiel, or Revelation. It's, 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 the like lost, one of it's those. in the
0: lost week of Daniel. <laughs> it's somewhere in there. Um, but which Chick-fil-A sauce are you going for? Because they, they do have good sauces. They do. I go for the straight-up Chick-fil-A sauce. Yeah, that's my go-to as well. There's something about it. A little creamy, a little tangy, it's, sweet. It
1: is ranch with barbecue. Yeah. I think.
0: Yeah, it feels like it. I think a little mustard sauce in there.
1: Or, yeah, yeah. and some honey mustard. No, honey it, it's I think it's, it's honey, honey mustard, mustard and, and barbecue.
0: Barbecue and ranch or something. And then or the mayo. standard meth crack combo. Yeah, the sprinkles. Yeah, that has the, 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 the sprinkles upon... Yeah, yeah. But if I'm picking one, I'm picking canes. Yeah, you know? and I've had, I don't know. And I don't hate Chick Yeah,
1: I, I, I'm not a hater, but yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd pick canes. Well, we've settled that So debate. now that we've been uh, excommunicated from most people's Churches,
0: <laughs> yeah. Speaking of leaving cults, we're leaving the Chick Fil A cult now. We're going into how to leave other cults. Nice transition. Hey, you like that? I'm I'm going to work on my segways, but you yeah. know, going from the Chick Fil A cult, leaving that, to going to leaving real cults in real life. Yeah. And side note, if you haven't noticed, it's just
1: uh, Steve and I today. Lance is. Uh, gonna join us for some future episodes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you'll have some episodes where it's Mike and I, some just Michael, some just myself. Yeah. Lance will come in as he can. He lives in the faraway land of Simi Valley. Yes. The Windy Valley, as it is in Simi means windy in native talk. Oh, I didn't know Uh, that. And it is a Windy Valley. When you go out there and the winds are kicking, they are a (laughs) (laughs) kicking. It just flows through that valley. Plus it's like the whitest place in Southern California, I think.
1: Yeah. Next to like Irvine or
0: uh, Irvine's not I very, guess Irvine's not Ir, as Irvine's white. pretty diverse, but it's very uh, strict. When, yeah. I, when I worked down in Irvine, I, they had the highest arrest rate, but they're also one of the safest cities in America. Yeah. So that's just the way they roll. They have not defunded their police department. <laughs> no, they have not, and nor <laughs> shall they ever. That I am certain of. So with that, we're transitioning from Chick-fil-A talk into <laughs> leaving abusive churches, and so as our series has been going, Mike and I have had experience in a culty church. I wouldn't call it a full-on cult, but it was culty. Um, as we reflect back and have been reflecting over the recording of these episodes, we realize that there were a lot of great believers there, mm-hmm. a lot of good Christian people in this church, which leads us to understand that you can be a good, solid Christian and be deceived. We We were very young in the faith, so we were easily deceived. Yeah. But even seasoned Christians... Which gives more impetus to being a faithful Berean, studying the text, and always being ready to go to the word beyond people. And that's a bit of what happened, is we were enthralled with the man rather than enthralled with Christ. And that's a bit of where the failure came in. But in God's goodness, he works it all out. So we've gone to karm.com, which is a great resource for apologetics. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt Slick, that's his name, right? Yep. Uh, best radio name ever, Matt no Slick. No relation
1: to Gray Slick.
0: No, 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 no Gray Slick or no. Brown Slick. He's <laughs> out of the picture as well. <laughs> Don't get me started on Brown Slick. <laughs> we're going to just, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna leave that just one. move on from that <laughs> we're, one. We're going to leave that one on the floor and just walk away. So we, karm.com has some characteristics of a cult. And all these characteristics were true in some degree or another of where we were at. Mm-hmm. And some of these characteristics you may see in other places, it doesn't mean they're um, you're in a cult, but they're just little red flags to look out for, things to consider. Before we jump in, though, there's one resource I wanted to talk about, which is a book titled Combating Cult Mind Control by an author, Steve Hassan. I went through this about a year ago. And he goes over a lot of these points. He tells his story of having been in the Moonies. And then afterwards, coming out of the cult and helping people with their, the mind control that comes from it. And a lot of it was very relatable. We weren't in a cult like the Moonies, but a lot of those principles were used, those tactics were used. And if Tom were allowed to continue on, this is probably the direction he could have gone and God's goodness, he didn't. And hasn't as far as we know. But that is a resource that I would recommend to anybody who's thinking through this, wants to learn more about it, or maybe is in a position to where they don't know what's going on, but they want some outside resources that's not Mike and I, um, that helps them think through some of the psychological and damaging issues that cults can bring up. Not a Christian book by any stretch. The man is a Jewish man who got involved in a cult, came out, and still is in Judaism. But he has great perspective and great things to consider that are worth thinking about and thinking through. So we have some characteristics from karm.com that we're going to go through, and these are big topics. We're going to hit some heavier, hit some lighter than others that reflect and talk about issues in a cult. Anything to add, Mike, before we jump in? Just a public service announcement,
1: kind of overarching theme. Have You probably picked up on it already, but for this episode, what we want to outline is our experience inside this abusive church and what that was like and we're using this list of characteristics of a cult as a jumping off point um so yeah the the idea is if you can relate with this and it sounds like the church you're in then yeah you might be in a an abusive church um so yeah that's that's all I had just yeah, psa perfect.
0: and as always with our disclaimer this is just our perspective right um, take this before the lord take this before the word And do some research, don't just take our word for it. We're speaking from a bit anecdotal perspective, but also seeking to have it rooted in scripture. um, And also in what the Lord's taught us through just the sanctification process of just living, which is a part of it as well. So with that jumping in, the first one, the big one is submission. Mm. So is submission inherently a bad thing, Mike? No, it isn't. In fact, it's very biblical. We're called to submit to our leaders. Mm -hmm. Um, There's roles that God has given us. whether it be work, church, and submission in its root um, is a biblical thing. We're called to submit to Christ, right? You know, we're called to submit to our leadership. But where where does it go awry a bit in the cult context?
1: The way it goes sideways is the submission that we're supposed to give to Christ gets transferred to the leader or the leadership team, and we're no longer submitting to Jesus directly. We're now called to submit to a human being yeah. in an ungodly way. And what I would, they they use scripture to tie you up, to make you feel like you're supposed to submit to them as, as you would to Christ, because they are somehow connected more closely to Jesus
0: than you are. It's in some ways like a pontificate mm-hmm. um, where there's a special authority and anointing given to the leadership that requires submission as though unto Christ as we would unto the Pope. Right. Um, And as with everything, there's always nuance of truth in it where God has ordained our leadership to be Mm -hmm. in authority um, and to rule and reign over us, but it's called to be done in love and kindness. Right. Um, That's a bit of the signs of where submission is going sideways as if it's dictatorial, overly authoritative and abusive in the sense of control. Mm -hmm.
1: And if I could interject, do it, um, a scripture that I don't have the address for as usual, because (laughs) that's kind of my jam of knowing basic scriptures and not knowing where they are. But I know it's in Matthew. Be a Berean. Yeah. uh, You know, do better than me. Um, um, Christ tells the disciples and the crowd, uh, don't call anyone on earth rabbi for you have one teacher and don't call anyone on earth your father for you have one father in heaven and don't be called teachers or instructors for you have one instructor who is the Christ. So spiritually speaking, Christ actually
0: forbids that kind of submission yeah. to a leader. So there's a tension there though, because mm-hmm. contrasting it with the verses where you're to submit and make it joyful for our leadership, right? and learn from them. But then Christ is making a contrast of the that God and the Spirit are the ultimate teachers. So mm-hmm. f- flesh out the tension a little bit, because there is, there is a bit of a pull each way there. Correct. So pastors and
1: teachers have been given to the church as leaders, and it says uh, the leader or the pastor's worthy of double honor. They're worthy of are respect and they're worthy worthy to be paid for what they do. Um, So it also says that we should submit to our leaders in such a way that it is not burdensome for them to lead. However, there are qualifications for who should and should not be a pastor. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit, I think the tension there with the Matthew passage is that someone should not be setting themselves up as your guru, And ultimately, all of us have the same Holy Spirit. There is no junior Holy Spirit. One of the pastors at our church says that, and I love it. That's a good phrase. Yeah, there is no such thing as a junior Holy Spirit. No triple A league Holy Spirit. It's all pro ball spirit. Yeah, it's the same Holy Spirit. They don't have a holier position before God, per se. I mean, they are set apart for teaching, but they're not imbued with the right to dominate your life and become the Holy Spirit to you. You need to follow the Holy Spirit's leading in your life. And what they do is they supersede that relationship by setting themselves up as your
0: guru. Yeah, so the theme that will keep coming back in this episode and others as well is we have submission to our leadership, but does that supersede or usurp the submission to Christ? Right. And that's the line is if you're willing to submit and do whatever this leader wants before you're willing to do and submit to whatever Christ calls and what is true in scripture, that's where the problem is. Mm-hmm. And that can be hard because our emotions can be very controlling and real. Yeah. Um, as we dig into more of what we're talking about, you'll see how it's it's a package in many ways. So with Tom at the little church we were at... Um. We think of his unwavering loyalty demanded Mm -hmm. that he wanted people to submit to him, and it was done very winsomely um, and done very charmingly, I would say, to to a large degree. There were always glimpses of the wickedness within. Um, So this idea that he's special, he's authoritative, he had this theology of the man of God. Yeah. So how does that factor into the submission aspect, which we've hit on a pinch, but speak on it with Tom directly. And then what would he do to keep us under his authoritative thumb? Like, would he reward? Would he Mm -hmm. give praises? What are some things he would do in those instances? So
1: his theology of the man of God is similar to other theologies that other, um, rogue pastors or abusive pastors, whatever you want to call them, will use. Um, and there's different versions of it for him. He tried to set up the pastor as a prophetic role that was above and beyond a normal everyday Christian based on this passage in Timothy where uh, Paul calls Timothy a man of God. He says, now you man of God, do X, Y, Z. And he would take that and then connect. This is through what's uh, a fallacious word study. It's a word study fallacy and the word study fallacy is basically this word or phrase appears here and it appears here. Therefore they have parallel meaning. Therefore the definition of what that is, is the same. So it'd be like taking, you know, one word in one context and looking at that same word in a totally different context and then changing the definition of the word in one of the contexts to fit the other one, when which if is, you read it in context, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Which is convenient. It is. They're and convenient. this happens a lot with word studies. Uh, so it's something to, to take note of. It, it's a fallacy. So he connects that phrase in Timothy to the man of God outlined in 1 Kings 13. Um, and this man of God was... Uh, just commissioned to go do one job and come back and he didn't do exactly what God said and he gets killed. So Tom's whole thing was that is the pastor's role. You are the mouthpiece of God. You do exactly what he tells you. And he's like getting downloads of information from God. And that is his driven position and, and mission. Uh, Other, other pastors will use something called the Moses model. Where they connect the pastor to Moses. Yeah. This is another one that I've heard um, draw a straight line from Moses to the pastor. Uh, Moses was a prophet, not a pastor. So there's huge problems with that philosophy, like right out of the gate. That's an even easier one to refute. Yeah. Because Moses had direct face-to-face contact with God, but the Moses model, they put the pastor up on that pedestal in the same way. Say, oh, the pastor's Moses. Another one is the pastor is a prophet. That's another one that gets thrown out there a lot. The pastor himself is some prophet of some ilk. Um, And it's the same problem. Pastors are not prophets. And then another one is the pastor is some part of an apostolic succession. And somehow they're connected directly to the apostles. There were only 12 apostles. There are no more. (laughs) So there's no more apostles. Your pastor is not an apostle. He's not a prophet. He's not Moses. And he may be a man of God in the sense that Paul used it, but he's not an Old Testament prophet.
0: So So these are ways that they demand submission and reign over the people um, with a strong hand. And people get beat down to where it's difficult to stay under that type of dictatorial submission. But it will hit this a little later, but he would reward you mm-hmm. for your submission to him. I remember for me, a lot of it was with gifts. And not that you can't give gifts to people who are faithful servants. But he would give gifts, um, money, objects, pins. I mean, a diff- variety of things to soften the blow of their abuse. Um, That way you think, well, they're mean, but they do nice things for me. What are some things Tom would do for you? Yeah. And this actually falls into another one of the categories here, which is love
1: bombing. Love bombing.
0: Which we could, let's just hit Mm -hmm. that right now, because it goes hand in hand with all these in some degree. So we have this ruthless submission required. People get bogged down and beat down. That's just almost impossible Mm -hmm. to stay under. So love bombing then does what to soften that. It's uh, in a
1: narcissist's sort of quiver of arrows or arsenal. It's one of the tools that narcissistic people use to um, sort of subjugate other people to themselves. And it's known as positive or not positive reinforcement, intermittent reinforcement. With a narcissist or someone who's got a narcissistic personality or even an abusive pastor in this, in this scenario, they'll be very demanding, harsh, critical, but then intermittently they'll do something super nice and they'll, it'll fit your love language because they're experts at reading people and figuring out what people want and need. For me, I remember, uh, he, he bought me a Mont Blanc pen. I remember that. And that's like a hundred dollar pin at least. Yeah. I would never spend that much money on a pin. And I was like, thank you. I was like, dang dude. Like that's, that's really generous, but gosh. And another time I remember he gave me, I think it was an iPod and it was at a church ceremony that we did. It might've been I don't remember what we were doing, but, uh, it was public. And he like gave me this gift publicly. And I remember thinking this feels really manipulative. I was like, it was was totally manipulative because behind closed doors, he was, I mean, it was a mixture. He wasn't just a straight up jerk all the time, but there were these really bad moments where he would light into me and stuff. Um, and it was getting bad, but, uh, in public, you know, oh, here's this gift. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> That's just two examples.
0: Yeah. It was always, uh, I don't know if they call them little things, but they weren't giant things, but mm-hmm. they were enough to keep pulling you along. I know instances at another church where, an a pastor was l- much like this, where they were very abusive, they'd yell, they'd scream, and they'd make heavy-handed demands, but then they'd be buying you lunch a lot, or they'd be buying you gifts, you know. This particular pastor's niche was fountain pens. And a friend who used to work for them said, yeah, you'd show up and just give you a really nice fountain pen every now and then Hmm. and say thank you for all your hard work. And then come to find out he was uh, sexually immoral and a liar and a plagiarist and got booted out of the church and it just was insane. So it explains a lot of the behavior and the anger issues behind that. What did he... uh How do you love bomb you? Tom, how would Tom love bomb me? Same things, gifts, gift cards, things like that. Um, Praising you in front of people. And there's the line because those things aren't inherently bad. Giving honor to whom honor is due is always a good thing. Giving gifts to people for their hard work above and beyond is never a bad thing. But it's the contrast of the gift giving with the verbal mental abuse and could be physical. We never experienced physical abuse. Some people have. Mm. For us, it was more emotional manipulation. And the trigger is, is if they're just an outright jerk behind closed doors, but then in public or in other ways, they're giving you gifts to help seemingly soften the blow or, you know, apologize without apologizing. That's the thing. But it was, it was things like that. Um, Take you out to dinner, you know, act sacrificial when... I'm not so sure he actually was, but giving this air sacrifice, it was things in that nature. Um, And yeah, I think it was the public ceremony where he gave me a gift card or something when you got your iPod. So it was this contrast of character and not to say that people don't have bad days, that you can't be grumpy, but then you have to question, should you be in leadership if you have an attitude that's wrong? And everybody's growing and learning. It's Mm -hmm. just an overall theme. And is there accountability for it? That's another thing that Tom didn't have was accountability. Where the elders were puppet elders and there was no submission on his part. He demanded submission, but he refused to submit to Mm -hmm. others. And I can speak from experience where I've interacted with pastors where maybe they're lean this way. And I get a little triggered sometimes as I've interacted in the past with certain men. Mm. Thinking, this reminds me a lot of Tom. Tom. But then I see how they interact with their elder board and that there is submission there, that they don't always get their way. That maybe they'll fight for their way, but when it comes down to it, if the elder board, which is more than just one or two guys, but a multitude of men, determine that this is not the route or direction we want to go and they submit to it, that's a sign that, okay, the Lord's working their lives and there's something going on. So submission in this aspect has to go both ways as well to where they need submission, but they also need to submit mm-hmm. and if there's no accountability, that's a big red flag, and then, yeah, I mean that's basically it, yeah, I know he
1: he also would spend a fair amount of time with me Senior. outside of church, and that was a uh form of love bombing, like we worked out together a lot, like lifted weights, yeah um yeah, uh, get a coffee hang out, yeah, exactly, you know? stuff like that, and so I mean, there was. There was a, it was a combination. If it was all bad, I wouldn't have stuck around so long.
0: Yeah. That's it. That's the manipulation in it. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's hard sometimes to discern because there are good aspects that can be used genuinely for the furthering of the kingdom, mm-hmm. but then there's other aspects that just fall apart. It's the overall character and arch and theme. Yeah. So connected with that, and this leads into the next point is exclusivity. We have this undying submission, which if you have an undying submission means you're special that you're with somebody special. And the exclusivity of what we had was rooted in the doctrine of regeneration, Mm -hmm. which in some ways he did get correct of the new man, the newness of life given, but because it wasn't fleshed out in other contexts and other churches the way he deemed it to be right, he demanded that we were so special and everybody else throughout all of church history, except for one person maybe, was wrong, that we had the unique anointing and the true truth from God, which gives you a complex of we're very special because we've seen it, Mm -hmm. and then gives us an attitude of being exclusive in what we do, seeking to bring others in, but so narrow that you actually push people out. And those who are truly saved get pushed out too because the spirit works, and (laughs) the spirit works... And causes you to see the faultiness of that. Yeah. So speak to exclusivity a little bit, Mike. What We are exclusive because the Christian truth is exclusive. Mm-hmm. So there's a truth to that. But where does it go awry in the cult mentality? The, I feel like
1: there's a few different passages and doctrines that get misused to help reinforce this idea of exclusivity. One is where... In the Gospels, Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many wonderful works in your name and that he'll turn to them and say, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. No. So they'll start with something like that, that m- many will be false professors of faith. And that that's kind of an entry point to the exclusivity mm-hmm. a lot of times. Like, don't you know that it's going to be many who are going to be cast away from christ's presence um and then like you said there often is some kind of special doctrine uh that's pushed special i use that in air quotes uh because most of the time whatever their pet doctrine is they're gonna be off on it somehow yeah Uh, there could be a fair
0: amount of truth in it, but they're gonna go off the rails somewhere on it. Well, and you use the phrase pet doctrine, Mm -hmm. usually there's an overemphasis on one aspect of truth that is ballooned up um, and is the central point of what they're teaching because if they branch out into the other doctrines, it rounds it all out. And they can't have that control because the truth isn't as exclusive. We see it smoothed over when you look at the breadth of truth. And the way church history has taught on these things, so there's no critical thinking in that aspect. And that causes and forces this exclusivity in your thinking. Um, It refuses you to be a critical thinker in many ways. It does. And that sense of exclusivity,
1: um, it makes you feel special. It makes you feel like you're one of the few, the chosen few, you know, your brother's in arms, Uh, All these other churches are off-kilter, and it gives you a sense of false spiritual pride. So it's kind of another manipulation tactic to keep you around. And to be fair, not every abusive church necessarily has a pet doctrine. A lot of these guys will. But there are some where they will actually teach mostly pretty well through the Bible, but they just view the pastor as some kind of special guru that everyone has to submit to. And they they may still teach that you're not going to find the truth at other churches. Yeah. So it, it, they don't necessarily have to have a pet doctrine. That's not always the case.
0: No. And something that leads into the next couple of points from this exclusivity is this idea of a persecution complex and isolation. Mm-hmm. Isolation, exclusivity, go hand in hand, persecution complex. Now, are we promised trial and tribulation? Oh, one hundred percent. And do we experience that here in America to some degree? Things are warm. I, well, I, are I mean, I got
1: a Starbucks coffee the other day, and it wasn't as hot as I wanted it. So I, yeah, they, mean, I was being tested by the devil.
0: They handed me <laughs> they, they handed me my unicorn frappuccino, and the color was off. And I'm like, <laughs> the devil's at work here. My unicorn frappuccino isn't as creamy as I like it. You know. So that's, that's kind of the extent of what we suffer here. But there is a pressure upon us as Christians in America, and it is a rising temperature that we are in the midst of that seems mm-hmm. to be rising quicker and quicker. We can feel it. We can see it. But it, compared to what some of our brothers and sisters around the world are going through, it, it's kind of lame. Um, it's still real, but it's very different. Mm-hmm. So that's different than this persecution complex, though. Real persecution is something unset by the devil. Persecution complex is something you perceive to be, but is brought on by yourself because you're a jerk, because your theology is wrong. Uh, They're persecuting me, even though you just chewed them out kind of a thing and they don't want to be around you anymore while they're persecuting me. And this is a mental tactic that seeps in and controls and then forces you to become even more isolated because while the world's against us, we have the truth, the true truth, this particular type of truth, and so everybody else is stupid, and we have a very special anointing from God, back to this whole idea of anointing and being Mm -hmm. special, which is fed from the leader. Now, broad strokes, this isn't true of every bad leader, isn't true of every church. There can be a bad leader that maybe doesn't do this. There can be churches that maybe lean this way, but aren't inherently evil and don't have the true gospel. They may, but this is something that you'll see in those contexts. So on the idea of persecution complex and isolation, what would you say we experienced under Tom and the church there that led us to that? There were two
1: main groups of outside influence that I think he would have pointed to to try to justify an idea of persecution. The first would have been Church A, where he pointed at them and said, see, they were trying to hold us down and... These terrible devil people over there at this church. That's the church we split from. The church we split from. Yeah. So he he would reference them as persecutors up front. And then as we got further away from that, it was more like all the other churches that are out there are false. And this goes to the exclusivity thing. And, you know, when you... Tell people about this doctrine. When you tell them about regeneration, they're going to reject you and they're going to say you're crazy and they're going to say that. Which
0: makes him a little prophetic because when he says that and then it happens, happens, you're like, oh, he's right. Mm-hmm. And why don't they see it as clearly as we do? Mm-hmm. Well, because they're not deceived. Mm-hmm. That's one reason why. But it makes you grow closer to the leader and pushes you further away from the people you love or want to love you or actually genuinely care for you. Because you see them combating what you think is true truth, and then because you don't want to hear anything different, you leave and avoid the contexts that put you in positions to be with those people. Mm. Yep. And that creates that isolation, which, why is isolation bad just on, a, just on a worldly level, and why is it even worse on a spiritual level? Yeah, I mean,
1: God says it in Genesis, right? It's not good that man should be alone. Um, now that's not just marriage. That's community. Right. We're, we're created to be in community. We're not made to be isolated. And um, isolation, it creates odd thinking. And it, it allows inaccurate and untrue thinking to sort of just proliferate in your mind because you're not being exposed to a broad swath of influences and people and ideas. So it allows for a more narrow mindset, and it's actually one of the only ways you can really propagate and uh, continue and keep someone in a really narrow mindset is by isolating them, because eventually people get out and see talk to other people, figure out these people aren't Satan and there's other ideas that are valid. They're going to want to explore that. So, um, yeah, we're not, we're not made to be isolated and it's, it's bad for the mind. It's bad for the heart.
0: Oh, and you think of, um, the Godhead itself or himself, I should say, is God has lived in all eternity in community Mm. Father, Son, and Spirit. Those are the terms we assign to him, um, but God himself is a communal being. Yeah. And therefore wants us to be communal beings as a reflection of his image and in a reflection of what is right and good because it's a characteristic of him, Mm. because it's what he wants for us. That's why the author of Hebrews tells us not to forsake the gathering because of everything you said. It allows us to be built up It's a means of grace, but it also allows us to be tested and to be forced to think critically and consider perspectives that are not our own, Mm -hmm. more so in this fallen world. I'm not sure what it would have looked like in the pre fall state, um, but there is advantages and need to be in that community, and isolation is the big factor. That's why if it's us versus them mentality, it never ends well. And once again, there's truth to that, whereas believers, there's an enemy out there. There are false religions, and in one sense, it is us versus them. But in the truest sense, we need each other so we can have well-rounded thinking, so that way the us versus them is truly the church, communal, the church universal, the church invisible against the true powers of the devil and the enemy mm-hmm. and that comes through building that community not through isolation
1: yeah and that in the truest sense our enemy is not other people other people are our mission field yeah. uh, and our brothers and they're also created in God's image whether they believe that or not whether they you know follow Jesus or not that's a That's a human being who is made in the image of God, and they have inherent value, and they are worthy of being loved just like anyone else. So for us to view other people as our enemies, primarily not just the demonic influences behind that, goes against what? Scripture really teaches us about how we love our enemies. That's why we love our enemies. Yeah. Just like Jesus said on the cross, right? Forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. They don't,
0: they don't even know they're deceived. When yeah. you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. No. And that's the sinfulness of sin. Mm-hmm. Sin makes you stupid. And sin can make people who are generally rational and good people do something completely out of character, unsaved and saved. Yeah. That goes both ways. And that's it. We, understanding that helps you empathize come alongside and want to reach out and to save rather than to condemn and isolate. That's the true heart behind it. And with that comes the next point of control. So we see these. there's a lot of overlap within these things, but control's a big one where they wanna control the member's actions, they wanna control the thinking, um, there's repeated indoctrination, even threats of loss of salvation that if you stray from this truth that we're preaching, Just a little bit, you're going to be damned and condemned. And not to say there aren't lines that are biblical and right. Justification. It's a huge one. If you're off in justification, uh, there's trouble there. We know that salvation rests in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, as Paul tells us in Corinthians 15. But there are other doctrines like his deity, like justification, um, that are detrimental to the Christian faith. The secondary doctrines, they can be very high, but they aren't salvific. That's usually where the control comes in is when we make secondary doctrines, primary doctrines, uh, even tertiary doctrines, primary doctrines. And that leads to this idea and aspect of control. The threat of loss of salvation is huge. Nobody wants that. And we all struggle with that. I don't think there's a Christian who doesn't struggle with their salvation to some degree. And to have a church leader who claims to have the truth, who you respect and love, though illegitimately, tell you that if you stray from this, you're going to lose your salvation, that's heavy. That's hard. And it freaks you out a little bit. Tom would do that um, primarily with his elders at the top, threaten them and abuse them, but then that trickled down quickly to the congregation. Yes, And though did. we weren't elders, we functioned, I guess, in some capacity as deacons, if we're going to assign a term to it leadership roles to a large degree in this little church. But that control was there with us big time. We've reflected on that so far in our discussion. What are some ways you saw Tom doing that control in our lives or in your life specifically? One of the things he liked to do was
1: if you disagreed with him on something, you were struggling with something, he would go into this whole line of thinking about and like Badger you with this thing that your flesh is totally evil and sinful, and you can't even see the truth because you're so deceived by your sin. And here's your sin, and then he would like outline you, yeah, outline it literally. He literally did that to people, he'd outline their sins for them, yeah. He, he, at the on a whiteboard, yeah. He didn't do it up when I was there, but after I had gone away to college, he got a whiteboard and he would outline your sin, yeah. He'd sit down with people, mm and
0: I remember him doing that to one individual in particular, yep.
1: Yeah. And he would sit there and outline your sin and tell you why you were so deceived and you needed to come around to his way of thinking. And he would do that to you until you either agreed with him or shed tears or he did that to me several times to the point where I broke down crying. Yeah, And it was like brutal. And I'm a pretty, like, I'm not the toughest guy ever, especially now, but like especially at that time, like I was kind of rough around the edges. Like I was not. So you some... got
0: saved out of some pretty hard
1: stuff yeah. and you'd come out of a background that was harsh. Yeah. I mean, I was like, in like abuse and everything the underground hip hop scene. I know this is so weird, but before I got saved, I was in the underground hip hop scene. <laughs> My favorite thing is a,
0: a half Jewish guy who's as white as white can be. You know, it is in the underground hip hop scene yeah. making it i, I don't, mean i don't know if making this the right term but you're yeah, doing it you're I, doing it i
1: mean trying definitely <laughs> i mean by underground i mean below the basement if there's a sub basement level that's how <laughs> underground it was it was real bad um but like i i i'm not some you know sh- like shrinking wallflower yeah um and for him to like berate me to the point of tears that's that's something. That's a little of
0: know. manipulation he could yeah. do.
1: Talk about control. So that, that was something I, he loved
0: to do. I remember he was consistently late. And oh, the church yeah. was so tiny that people would see it. If you're in a church of like 1,500 people, you have so much going on. People don't really notice it. But when you're in a church of 100 people, people notice your schedule. And not that it was necessarily right that he was berated the way he was for it, but he was. And it, some of it was because his attitude was just so bad. And I remember I was always early, I'm consistently an early person and I was running sound. And I remember I showed up like on time, maybe two minutes late thinking, oh, we're fine, to an evening service. This is even just the night service. And he was there early that day. So I walk in and just go straight to the soundboard and he made some comment upfront about me being late And I said, Well, the one time I'm late, you're early. And I remember everybody laughed, (laughs) everybody. And he was incensed. And then afterwards, he came up and he says, Making comments like that means a bear's gonna come out of the woods and eat you. Like he's Elisha. Wow. Which was impressive. At the time, it freaked me out. You know, I'm like, Oh man, what did I do? Now I look back and I'm like, Wow, you're a jerk. Yeah. You're a moron. Biblical threats of God's wrath. Because you, because you made a joke, I embarrassed him. Yeah, because I embarrassed him. Mm-hmm. That's all it was, and I called him out on his junk in some yeah. capacity. It's things like that and publicly. Yes, and that was the that was a line. I'm not saying what I said was necessarily right, but it was funny and it was true, completely true. I'm sorry if you can't rib each
1: other a little bit well, and have a
0: good sense of humor about yourself. There's a problem. That's it, and that you know? means there's some idolatry there oh, in some yeah. capacity on both ends. That just well, salvation was an issue with him to begin with, mm-hmm. with at the absence of it, I should say. But this idea of control, it's through things like that that put heavy burdens on you, that make you do things that you wouldn't normally do, that manipulate you emotionally to then manipulate you in your action. And the only one that should be working in us to do what is right is the spirit of God. Amen. With the guidance of the people around us, but not in a way that is controlling or manipulative. And we talked about love bombing already, Which is always the fun one, but the control and the love bombing tend to go hand in hand just to hit that again.
1: Yeah, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. They
0: beat you down with the threat of being eaten by bears, and then they buy you a gift. Now, I can't say if he bought me a gift after that or something, but I'm sure he did something that tried to redeem it to keep me from freaking out. But those always go hand in hand with this manipulation, this isolation, but here's some giftedness or here's some gifts to help you along to realize I'm not that bad of a guy or whatever, or gal, because there are lots of ladies who are cult leaders as well. And with the love bombing, with the control, all this, um, the isolation, this idea of persecution complex and exclusivity, uh, comes this idea of special knowledge. Um, once again, a lot of overlap, and we've hit on this already, but special knowledge and indoctrination Um, With us, it was this idea of regeneration, that the flesh is inherently wicked, not Gnostic at its completeness, but gnostic e, in the sense of the physical world is bad, the flesh, literal, is wicked, and the spiritual is what is redeemed and true. And with every false doctrine, there's an air of truth to where we have been made new spiritually. And yes, there is a wickedness in the world around us that needs to be redeemed still, but as a unit, as a spiritual being and a physical being, we're combined to where this flesh, though tainted with sin, isn't wicked or bad in the sense of it's just inherent nature that the the meat is full of sin. And that was the indoctrination and the special knowledge we received, which, fun fact, Gnosticism, Gnosko is knowledge, mm-hmm. which roots back into the idea of special knowledge. Mm-hmm. So we have that as the root of what we went through. It's fleshed out in other ways in different cults. Right. Everybody has their pet doctrine. Maybe it's the same, probably different. What does that do to the believer? What does that do to the person who is in this situation um, to retain a loyalty to the cult and cult leader? Yeah, the
1: uh, leader
0: will make some kind of claim to special knowledge. And could be direct revelation Mm -hmm. could just be special insight to the text Mm -hmm. with Tom. A lot of it was, he was so rooted into the original languages. You have to know the original language in order Mm -hmm. to truly understand this. And if you don't understand Greek or Hebrew, which he was a master of, according to him, he was scholarly level at it. He had it down so well, um, that you could not truly understand the truth. The the English text is fine, but if you really want to get it, you got to go to the Greek. And if you don't, well, you're just kind of stuck. I'll help you learn it, but you're going to learn it my way. You're going to learn it to interpret it the way I interpret it. And if you don't, you just have to trust me. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem.
1: Yeah. So his version of it was that he was the anointed scholar.
0: <sighs> which which is just so disgusting on so many levels. It is,
1: because he didn't even earn his degree.
0: No, which uh, <laughs> I forgot about that, but you're right. He claimed he had a master's of divinity or the equivalent of, Mm -hmm. certificate-wise, and never finished, never completed, and lied through his teeth about having it and who he was associated with. Mm -hmm. Which is bonkers. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's, you know, another thing he used was his connection to, like we've mentioned before, his connection to John MacArthur. Yeah. Um, But when it comes to the special knowledge thing, some teachers will, like you said, they'll claim direct revelation from God. Uh, He also... Our guy, Tom, claimed that he was infallible from the pulpit, as yeah, we that mentioned was, earlier. It's a fun one. Which is means, to some extent, not only his study, but also his the act of preaching, I think he believed there was some kind of download happening there.
0: Which, fun fact, we found out afterwards that he plagiarized a lot of his stuff. So, apparently, since it was anointed by God, it didn't have to be his own words, which I just—there's layers there. <laughs> There's—it's— there's, It's is so ironic. It's it's
1: ridiculous. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, he claimed that special knowledge, and some leaders will claim um, that they've had direct encounters with God. Yeah, um, visions.
0: Visions, dreams. That's exactly it. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they are above and beyond the normal people. They have direct contact with the Lord himself. The word is good. The word is sufficient, but I have a little something extra That goes beyond the word because I've had direct contact with God where the scriptures tell us, no, you have the spirit, you have him as your teacher, you have God as your teacher, and you have my word in the text itself. And that is literally all you need. Mm -hmm. God gives us the community to test us, to grow us, to mature us, to sharpen us. But if you go outside the text, you go outside devotion to Christ, and you have a leader who is claiming infallibility claiming direct revelation in some capacity. That's off the rails. Mm -hmm. Is there giftedness? I would say my pastor is extremely gifted at preaching the text and teaching the text. He has a special gift that is clearly from the Lord to be able to explain and enter into the hearts of men um, that the Lord uses. Mm -hmm. But he would not claim he's infallible by any stretch. Mm -hmm. And he understands that he has made and will continue to make mistakes from the pulpit that he has to correct when that goes away, there's a problem. Yeah, And I'm not worried about my pastor. Is every pastor have issues? Yeah, every pastor's gonna yeah, have something to disagree with, they're human. There's personality things that maybe I don't like, but he loves the Lord, he seeks to love the people, and he seeks to proclaim the truth, but he knows he is not infallible from the, the pulpit yeah. and that the text is what is infallible. He does his best to explain it, he does his best to lead the people, but if correction comes, he needs to do his best to accept that correction with humility and move forward, adjusting appropriately for the glory of God and the good of the people. Mm -hmm. When it's for the glory of self and the good of your ministry or mission or bank account, that's the problem. Yeah. So we've talked about indoctrination, all these different things control. Groupthink, when you're in a community, there's a movement um, of wanting unity in that. And groupthink is this coherence that's the observance of policies handed down from those in authority, like the don't talk rule, different things like that. It's essentially getting everybody to function like a hive mind where you're all Mm -hmm. thinking the same way. There's no differentiation. Everybody's ducks in a row. And there's no personality. There's no breadth of thinking. It's just here's what we're thinking, here's what we're doing, and we're all doing it the same like a beehive would do. Mm -hmm. Where did that factor into our experience? And it didn't pan out because the church fell apart and people just slowly kind of trickled out because of the abuse and God's goodness. It was an unsuccessful cult or culty church, however you want to phrase it. But the group think was there. And it was heavier at the beginning when everybody was emotional from the church split. It faded over time just because that's God's goodness and the way it works without a dynamic leader. A dynamic in some degrees, but a bad speaker. Uh, he uh, complained that we didn't edit his CDs well enough to make him sound good, and that's because he just sucked at talking.
1: Yeah, he stuttered like every couple sentences.
0: <laughs> Which was exciting when you're trying to edit that, you know. Yeah, the fun never begins. Yeah, you know, <laughs> never begins and never ends all at the same time. But this groupthink, where do we see that in our little context?
1: It sort of grows out of the indoctrination. Um, as you're being indoctrinated, your, the goal is to try to get everyone to think the same way. And then the, the group think is kind of the enforcement side of the indoctrination to some extent. And one of the things that Tom did is he, I remember he used to say this all the time, how can two men walk together unless they be agreed? How can you have unity with people that you have doctrinal Disagreements with and not just major doctor, doctrinal disagreements, but minor ones. Yeah. Like you had to line up on every fine point of
0: doctrine and you had to line up with him. Yes. There's no community of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always very, very narrow. And it's confusing the idea of unity versus unanimity, just to use those terms, that unanimity means you're aligned on everything. Unity means that you're able to come together and work together. Though maybe there are disagreements, there's a general unity that functions and flows within the community. And that's the realistic one. That's why we can lock arms with the Presbyterian churches, though we would align ourselves more like a Baptist. Mm -hmm. That's why we can lock arms even with other denominations that maybe we don't agree with on everything, but they love the Lord, they have the Spirit, and we can function as a church. But then when it comes to like the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, Mormons and other cults like that, we can't lock arms spiritually. Can we go serve the homeless together? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, can we stand side by side and help in disaster situations? Of course. But when it comes to things that are spiritual or lead to spiritual things, we can't lock arms with the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses. But we can with Presbyterians. We can with Methodists. To you know Variations in each denomination. They're... Right had Baptist churches too that are damned. So that's where this critical thinking comes in, and you can find unity in the breadth of diversity. And mm-hmm. that was anathema to him.
1: Yeah, and critical thinking is uh, is discouraged in, in order to help enforce groupthink. And I remember Tom, uh, one time I was just, we were just chatting and I was like, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day. They say that necessity is the necessity breeds invention. But I think that laziness also breeds invention. And it was supposed to be kind of a joke. And he's like, but, and, but I think it's also true. You know, yeah. I was just thinking about that. And he's like, okay, Mr. Philosopher, <laughs> like, what do you know? <laughs> But he would say stuff like that. Like if you had your own thoughts about something. He'd demean it. He would demean you. So, I mean, just a stupid offhanded comment like that was enough for him to try to put the kibosh on it. His control. Yeah. And yeah. and don't, you know, group think. You're not not supposed to think for yourself. So this like kind of shutting down of critical thinking. Um, and another thing that he did was he didn't want anyone reading commentaries. Um, so he really tried to discourage any kind of outside information coming in, especially to your interpretation of scripture. He didn't want you reading systematic theologies. He didn't want you reading commentaries. Uh, it was your Bible, your brain and his voice. And that was it.
0: And if you had anything else outside of that, you were at threat of losing your salvation you're at threat of denying the gospel and you're at threat of losing everything you love your community in this little cult, your family, which attended there. At least for me, my parents got out eventually because God's good. But there's a thread of control that goes beyond just the truth to loss of salvation and to loss of everything you love. And you see that in a lot of cults where it's hard to leave because these are the people who love me. They care for me. They bought me dinner. They supported me. They gave me a room to stay in when my family kicked me out. That's hard. Mm -hmm. That's very hard. One thing to consider is as we interact with the varying degrees of cults, is if we as Christians are going to go and witness to these people and love them, we have to be prepared in some capacity to maybe take them in. If they get saved and the spirit works in them and they have to leave their entire community and they have no home to go to, are we willing and prepared to give them a bed to sleep on? Right. Because that may be the case. I would Mm -hmm. say more often than not, it's not, but there are some examples to where it is. At least in our experience, it wasn't that. Right. But are we willing to take these people in? Think Mm -hmm. of even like the Muslim community, they're very community driven. Yeah. But when somebody becomes a Christian, the Muslim community, they're shunned, they're kicked out. They're no longer Mm -hmm. allowed in their own homes. Varying degrees, general truths, but are we as Christians then willing to bring them in and embrace them and love them and show them the kindness and love of Christ and give them a bed to sleep in and food no. to feed them out of our own pocket because they have nothing. They could lose their job in some capacities. Mm-hmm. That's a part of the shunning. That's a part of the push away that these cults will do upon people. Shunning's a big one. There's shame that comes with shunning. Mm-hmm. It really demeans you. It diminishes you. But once again, that comes because of a misguided focus or misplaced focus on the leader and the church rather than on Christ, Mm because Christ will never shun you. Christ will never reject you. Christ Mm -hmm. will always embrace you. Christ will always love you, though the world may deny you. Like there's Athanasius Contramunda, that's where he was denying the Arian heresy back in, I think, the fourth century. And he was rejected, but he stood on the truth of the deity of Christ. And was rejected by the whole Roman Empire and shunned and kicked out. And the famous phrase is Athanasius contra Munda, Athanasius against the world. Hmm. Because he knew the truth so well, and he was so close to Christ that he was rejected by the entire empire and his entire community, Hmm. where he stood upon truth, which we still talk about to this day. That's hard. Then he had a special call. He had a special position but we as believers must be prepared to bring in people who are shunned to the point of shame and Mm -hmm. rejection and love them and care for them. One last odd thing that cults do, and this is putting a pin in the end of our discussion, is the gender roles. Yeah. Not to say that there aren't distinct gender roles in the Bible. A hot debate right now is egalitarianism versus complementarianism. I'm a soft complementarian. I think there's more roles that we can give women in the church than we allow credit for, but I do see distinct lines given in the text for leadership in the church, mm-hmm. male leadership, um, male pastoralship, male eldership, and that's it. But I think we do our ladies a disservice by denying them other positions of authority in the church that they can function and do well in, not as a threat, but to embrace them in their giftedness and as image bearers of God. Yeah. But in cults, that's completely wonky. The extreme example is the women dress a certain way. They're to submit in the bedroom, they're to submit in the home, um, they're abused and the men get their back scratched by being this authoritarian dictator in their mm. own home getting sex whenever they want, having their meals made, complete jerks and we saw Tom function in that capacity in many ways in his own home yeah and in the church as well. One example of this weird gender role thing Tom one time called his wife fat in front of me where his wife had had four kids. Mm just had her fourth, I think, maybe fifth. And so she's post-pregnancy weight and she wasn't giant. Yeah. She wasn't like a cow. She was post-pregnancy weight and he yeah. like pinched her love handle in front of me and called her fat. She, and she, she walked away crying. I remember that. She was the sweetest thing on earth yeah. too. And it's like, what are you doing? It was just weird and just things like that the ladies at this church never liked him mm-hmm. because of the way he treated his wife and they saw it yeah and they did not care for it i remember his wife had had one of the kids and he was talking about how god graciously gave them a smooth birth and all that and how exhausted he was <laughs> and somebody in the congregation one of the ladies was like wah, 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 and he did not like that but he didn't say anything because they were big tithers <laughs> he left them alone but he got mocked in front of everybody for complaining about how tired he was after his wife gave birth. That is Which hilarious. was hilarious. One last one I have is we had had our first son, my wife and I, and we were over at his house for time with him or whatever. And his wife wasn't there. So I sat my son down and I fed him in the high chair just to give my wife a break. And I wanted to, I enjoyed it. And that happened and the day or two later, I met with him and he's like this, and that's a ladies thing don't ever feed your son again like that. That's for women to do. Wow. It's like, what are you? I'm like, okay. I didn't say anything, but I'm like, eh, I'm going to feed my son. I just won't feed him in front of you kind of a thing. Stuff like that. And then in the church, that was something I inherited in my marriage, which was not good, was having that authoritarian dictatorial role because of the example I saw in him, having to repent of that and work through that. And that's just something inherent in men is to want to be these dictators in the in the home. Mm-hmm. And with an unsaved man who takes a bad theology promoting that, it feeds the flesh and it makes us as men feel like, oh, we're doing what's right before God. Yeah. When you read the Proverbs 31 woman, she has a ton of independence and a ton of trust of her husband and a lot of freedom. And it's not a threat to him. It's actually a joy. He trusts her. He loves her. Where the dictatorial mindset is control and abusive any thoughts on the, these gender roles maybe expanded beyond my own personal or our own personal lives you saw in the church or even your interactions?
1: Yeah. In our situation, Tom, it felt like he viewed—he never really said it out loud. He just sort of lived it out. It, it seemed like he viewed women as second-class citizens. Yeah. One example of that was I got engaged when I was in college to a girl— obviously. And well, I don't know how obvious that is now, but... Uh,
0: <laughs> Just so you know, yeah. it was
1: a woman. It was a girl. But you, uh, you, yeah. you did not end up marrying. Well, no, no, it ended up, we didn't get married. Um, and we went to Pastor Tom for quote unquote marital counseling. Yeah. And it was one of the most odd interactions that I remember having with him. We showed up at a Starbucks. He set his. Fu- he looked like he had not slept for two days. He was, and it was like 10, 1030 in the morning. He sets down his phone on the table where, at Starbucks, and there's a picture of his wife in a bikini as his screensaver on his phone. But she looks like she's like 18 or 19 years old in the picture. And he saw that I had glanced at his phone and was kind of like puzzled, but he's like, oh, yeah, that's my wife when she was 19 years old. Gives me something to look forward to going home to. And then he, like, closed the phone off. And this is at our premarital counseling session. Then, as we get into the counseling part of it, he says to my fiancé about his wife, he says, her only job on this earth is to support my ministry. Wow, <laughs> that's,
0: that's,
1: and I we bad. we both were like, mm. and we when we drove away, we're like, yeah,
0: we're never doing that again. Yeah, <laughs> both of us were like, uh, uh-uh. yeah. Wasn't there a time where he, like, verbally accosted his wife for over dinner when you were there? There was. Uh, I was there for it was a lunch. I had
1: come to uh, see Tom about something church-related, of course. Uh, And it was around, like, 1 p.m., and he was still studying, and his wife had made lunch, and it was, like, in the oven waiting for him. And she gently says, Tom, come get lunch. It's going to get cold, you know. And he's, like, fine. And he comes in. She puts the plate down in front of us, right? And she made extra for me. And this was, like, a homemade lunch. It was, like, some kind of delicious food, like – awesome homemade meal chicken vegetables yeah you know whatever something good she was a good cook she was and it it was amazing i was like wow this is how you eat lunch like pb and j would have been fine you know Yeah, give me an uncrustable yeah exactly (laughs) like i'm good (laughs) a couple of those i'm good And a glass of milk i'm I'm happy yeah i'm solid for the next five hours you know or three um but she sets a plate down in front of him he goes what is this he's like i can't eat this this is ridiculous Like, you interrupted me my studying so I could come out to this? And he just starts reading her. And I go, dude, what is your problem, Mr. Picky Pants? What is wrong with this? There's nothing wrong with this food. Uh, You must have gotten the wrath of God. He he just gave me this cold stare. And his wife goes, yeah, Mr. Picky Pants. What's wrong with this? He was so pissed at me that I stood up for his wife. (laughs) He just gave me this cold glare. And he's like, all right. So, you know, we all ate lunch and, and he sort of surprisingly, I don't remember him screaming at me or anything at that point, but I, his kids were around and stuff. Poor wife probably got yeah. it later. She probably did. Um, But yeah, that was, I was like, what is your major malfunction?
0: Yeah. It was issues upon issues. Those gender roles we experienced firsthand in those capacities. But in the church, it was softer because he had to maintain a certain presence mm-hmm. in front of the people to keep the tithe money coming in and to keep his quote-unquote ministry going.
1: Oh, wasn't there also an incident with your wife?
0: Uh, yeah, she, yes. He, she had pigtails at the time. We'd gone over there like to have a double date or whatever and watch some movie. And I remember he tugged on it and said, oh, these are good to... What did he say? If you tug on these, and make you squeal and sound like you're faking an orgasm or something like that. It was bizarre. Dang, dude. And I don't remember. I remember thinking, this is weird. And like, all right, we're never doing this again. Too much of a coward to say anything at the time because of the fear of the wrath you'd receive. But just avoid the situations from all present, future, and everything else. And he just would do stuff like that to show you his authority, but also to show you where a woman's place was. Mm -hmm. That's oftentimes in a cult to where there's a sexual aspect, to where there's a domineering sex demand. Not all the time, but I would say there's a lot of that in the weird, the weirder the cult, the weirder the sex stuff. Mm. But also just this authoritarian need to be domineering over women is perverse and wicked And we saw that enough. And that's why the ladies didn't like him because they saw how he would treat his wife. Yeah. And though it was softer in the more public areas, it couldn't be hidden. And there was a discernment given to the people to where they saw it and rejected it. The guys who liked it, one of the elders in particular, who was more old school fundamental, who I had a lot of respect for, and I certainly loved the Lord, but he had this old school mentality of women should be in the... Home, in the kitchen, yeah. raising children, that's about it. And that was his background and his theology. He didn't mind it because it scratched that itch for him. And not that he was had a bad home life or abused his wife, but he just saw, yeah, this is the place for women to be. But the other ladies didn't like it at all. Um, you saw with your fiance, the weirdness that brought out, with my wife as well, she did not like it, along with a lot of other people. The more you tithe, the nicer he was to you though, Mm. which is a factor of it too. So we've hit 10, 12 points here. The big theme is control. But ultimately, where does your heart rest in? Is it in this leader who's dynamic? Though I wouldn't say Tom was necessarily that dynamic, but he was winsome. He was likable. We wouldn't have stayed around if it was all completely horrible.
1: And he had a detailed and expository, exegetical preaching style that appeal to people. Yes. Not stupid man.
0: No. Uh, Articulate, but deceived. So does your hope rest in the man or rest in Christ? Is the supremacy of your life rooted in the ministry or in the Lord? Hmm. And that's the thing you have to ask yourself is where does it truly rest? What does it look like? How does that function? And then go to the Lord and ask him to reveal the truth to you even though we're on the other side of it, I still have to go before the Lord and ask him to show me where I'm wrong. Am I being deceived in the situation? Am I being overly critical of this pastor because of my experiences with Tom? Um, Is this really a false teacher or am I just perceiving it incorrectly or am I not? And the Lord will give you guidance on that. The spirit is in you and working in you. He's working and doing his thing and he will give you the grace and ability to continue on if you're not sure where you stand before the Lord, cry out for help, pursue the gospel, pursue Christ, and throw yourself on the blood of Christ for salvation and redemption. And he'll give it to you. With our experience, critical thinking's key. Is it rooted in Christ? That's key. And then just trust him with the rest and pray a lot. And critical thinking plays into going to others for help. Look at church history. Where has the church been through these last 2,000 years? Where has there been differentiation? Where has there been unity? And go from there. Any last thoughts, Mike, before we close this up? Yeah,
1: that's um, like kind of a short preview of our next episode, which is going to be about uh, what do we do to escape yeah. a church like this? Because getting out of a situation like this can be a lot harder than people think. And from the outside looking in, it's easy for people to say, well, why don't you just leave? You know? And it's not that simple. Yeah. Um, it's you've been uh, you've been spun up in a theological, psychological web of lies, and it takes some work of the spirit and personal work to get out of that. So that's what we want to cover in the next episode. How to move on, how to move how, Yeah. How to ident- you know, I hopefully this episode it helps you identify you, your situation or maybe a, a loved one situation. Um, that they're in with a church and it helps you realize, like that, wow, maybe maybe I'm stuck in something I shouldn't be in, or yeah, my, my buddies are or something. So, uh, yeah, so we'll talk about escaping next.
0: Well, that wraps up this episode of Rants and Revelations. I hope the Lord uses this, that you're blessed by it, and as always, don't just take our word for it. Go to the text, go to others, seek the truth, and God will grant it to you. But cry out for help. If you're not in this situation, but you know people who are, there's good resources out there. Go to your pastors, go to your elders and pray like crazy. The Lord will work. may not be in your time frame, may not be on your schedule, but the Lord will do his thing. But stay faithful and he will do his part. Well, with that, I'm Steve. I'm Mike. And we'll catch you on the flip side.